And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. My fellow Americans, welcome back to the Inspired Service Podcast. I'm Noah Scheinbaum, and I'm thrilled to be joined today by Annie Forsheimer who has recently retired from the State Department after an illustrious career as a Foreign Service officer. She most recently served as the Acting Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Bureau of South and Central Asian Affairs. Annie, welcome to the show. We're glad to have you. Thank you very much. Annie, we're going to go through some of your biography today. I mean, you've had an incredible list of positions and experiences all around the world and throughout the U.S. government. But before we dive into that, I'd love to start at the beginning and hear a little bit about why and when you decided to join the Foreign Service. Thank you. A very early inspiration for me when I was in middle school was President Carter. His was a voice that seemed to stand for a different kind of United States that was on the side of people without power around the world and his belief in human rights was something I had never heard of before. I tucked that away. When I got to college, I studied history. And at some point, not really knowing what I wanted to do, and of course, I did love to travel, I went to our career center and found a booklet on the Foreign Service, and I had never known anyone in it. So they had a practice exam, and I still remember taking the exam on the train going home. And I did very well on the exam. And I thought, oh, my goodness, here's something I'm qualified to do. And it sounded pretty incredible. So I did take the exam the next year, and it took me three times to pass with a grade that was high enough to get a job as a political officer. And I started when I was 24. Wow. So three times to to take the exam. And that's not that uncommon for the Foreign Service, right? Unlike... You know, most people, you apply to a job and you either get it or you don't, and then you kind of move on. That process must have been tough. What fueled you to keep taking the exam as opposed to moving on to something else? I wouldn't say it was so tough in the sense that when you take the exam or it does or doesn't go your way, you're doing a lot of other things in the meantime. You know, I got my first job during that period. I passed the exam the second time, but I just didn't pass with a high enough grade. So that was my my backup plan anyway. I could have gotten in. I just wouldn't have gotten the job that I wanted. And it was not that tough to take it again, feeling confident that I, you know, would probably do better, which I did. Got it. So it was a matter of getting, not just getting in, but getting the job that you wanted. You get that job in the political cone and you enter in the Foreign Service and your first tour is what? My first tour, as they do to pretty much everyone back then and still, you have to do a a consular tour. So my first tour was consular and it was in Colombia. And it just happened to be Colombia at the point which is probably familiar to anyone who's watched Narcos. Pablo Escobar was very much alive and there were still four or five different political guerrilla groups drug cartels, a lot of violence. And I land there, I was 25 years old in one month. And I always say that my parents took that better than I would have. (laughs) 
And that is where I met my husband, which is helpful to the whole uh, uh, factor of enjoying the tour. But it was tough. The security measures are very high. My ability to move around was constrained. And, you know, I was I was young and I was under a microscope and it was it was a tough way to live. So Columbia, quite quite a, a moment in history to be there. And obviously that had ramifications for the rest of your career and your some of the other positions you had in the Bureau of Western Hemisphere Affairs. Had you studied uh, Latin America? Did you know anything about Columbia? Was this a random assignment? I had studied Latin America as far as there were courses to study at in college, but I was a European history major. And I did not know anything specifically about Colombia. So they do uh, training for us, which is all of two weeks on area studies. But it can be intense and it gives you a good grounding. Um, Colombia has been a very tricky country for many, many years, although I'm happy to say it's absolutely on an upswing now. It is. It's pretty cool. It's almost like you graduated from school and then you get more school. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. You know, the training cool. The training is well done. And, and I had to brush up Spanish, even though I had studied that in college. It's one of the things that is most impressive to me about the Foreign Service. How long does the average Foreign Service officer study a language before they are expected to be semi-fluent and then go abroad and, and use it? It's a factor of the language. Easier languages like Spanish have a, a standard six-month, you know, zero to talkable. And then there's the one-year language study, which I did twice in my career for Turkish and for Dari. And then there are some languages which take two years. The Jap- there are five, Japanese, Arabic, Korean, Chinese, and uh, one I'm forgetting. It's unbelievably intimidating for someone who I think <laughs> took Spanish for, I don't know, maybe eight years and still hardly speaks it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's so impressive. The uh, other part of this, of this first tour of yours in Colombia was you mentioned it was a consular tour. Now, I think some of the listeners may have some idea of what that means and what that entails. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what a consular tour actually entails? It entails stamping passports and visas. <laughs> um, it's uh, It's got, you know, there are two types of visas, basically tourist visas or visas for people who are coming to live in the United States. And then passports is kind of shorthand to all of the services that are granted to um, American citizens. So Americans who are overseas can expect that their consular officer will try to take care of them a bit if they land in jail and that they will, you know, offer document services while they're overseas. So you're a bright-eyed and bushy-tailed recent college grad excited to go travel the world and and be a diplomat on behalf of the United States of America and you land in Colombia and and you're stamping uh, visas and passports. Was that an exciting tour for you? What did you do to keep yourself motivated in that time? Is that a important part of your career? Or how do you think back on that? You know, consular, consular work is hard. I was plenty motivated. You're worried about getting it wrong. And uh, you get great stories. You know, I'm 30 years in the Foreign Service, but I still tell stories from that period in my life. I mean, for example, uh, an American woman came to my window to say that she had just been released from jail. She had been in jail for attempting to smuggle something on behalf of her boyfriend. 
and that she had left her suitcases and worldly possessions with her lawyer and that the lawyer had stolen them and she wanted our help getting them back which is not the kind of thing we're actually able to do but you know we can give a shot at it so we called in the lawyer and the lawyer came separately stood at the same window and told me that she didn't have any suitcases that there was no such thing as you know the worldly possessions etc <laughs> And I thought to myself, one of the two people I just spoke to lied to me. You know, that has to be true because they're telling me completely opposite things. And I don't know which one of it it is. <laughs> but mm. I was, you know, I was 25, but I was kind of a young 25. I don't think I ever really had been lied to, you know, <laughs> so baldly mm. to my face. And, uh, and it kind of stuck with me. That when you work with the public, you know, what people have to deal with is pretty incredible. Yeah, it's a kind of a crash course in rough and tumble realities of the real world, I suppose. Absolutely. And, a, you know, and a, and a sheltered, you know, upbringing. And by the way, I never did find out and I advised the, you know, woman who'd been released from jail that she would probably be better off just leaving Colombia before something else happened. So th that's one of the interesting things I wanted to ask you about, which is diplomacy happens on one hand, state to state, capital to capital, but it's really about people and relationships. Those stories that I think we don't hear as much in the, in the press or in the media are about the relationships that you as diplomats build beyond the rhetoric from heads of state about the nature of the relationship between two countries. So yeah. I'd love to, to hear about some of the other um, important relationships that you've built uh, in your in your time representing the United States. And, and are there any that might surprise us? Well, in two of my tours, the following after Colombia was South Africa, and then later was Turkey. In two tours, I was the human rights officer and kind of returned to that to that issue that had really gripped me before. There, my job was to go make friends with all of these brave human rights defenders, lawyers, activists, you know, political opposition leaders, very, very, very cool people. And it was great because I was in a position to at least try to amplify their voice within the US bureaucracy. And because of Jimmy Carter, not because of like his inspiration, by the way, but because by law, they established the writing of the annual human rights report. Because of that report, at least one person in every embassy has to go and talk to human rights groups. And they have to gather information from those groups and from the government. Uh, that statistics that back up a, a picture of whether, you know, extrajudicial killings are happening, whether um, unions are allowed to organize uh, religious freedom, uh, trafficking in person. So all of these things are mandated by law, by Congress. And that means that there's one person or more than one person in the embassy who has all of these connections. And once you have the connections, you do what you can to try to get their voices heard at the highest level possible. 
even when, you know, the overall relationship that we as a government have with the host nation's government indicates that this will be an uncomfortable conversation, it's still, you're the advocate for those people. It's a lot of responsibility. <laughs> well, in South Africa, of course, the tide had turned and people really wanted to hear what I had to say. Um, they, you know, there was a great deal of interest in the human rights situation. But when I was in Turkey, uh, I was the skunk at the picnic that people were not as thrilled to hear that, you know, torture was up or that other problems were still rampant. So it, it really varied. And you actually won an award for your work in Turkey. You were the 2001 recipient of the, the State Department's Human Rights Award. What, what is it like trying to push that boulder up a hill when <laughs> potentially the people in power don't necessarily want you to succeed in their country? It was hard. I had great support within the embassy, but it was still hard to get the issue on the table. I remember once working with a whole bunch of people on a list of topics for a bilateral meeting between our government and the Turk, you know, our, I can't remember who in the U.S. government, but with the Turkish prime minister. And you know, it's not that human rights wasn't on the list. It's where it was on the list, because, in fact, there were a whole lot of other issues to talk about. So if if a topic is on a list, but the list is like 40 or 50 topics long, then it's meaningless. And I don't think I won that particular battle. I was in Turkey when 9-11 happened. And I will say that everybody involved, and, and, and me included, you know, you had a moment there where you're your sort of wholehearted, full-throated feelings about human rights took a took a little blow because it was very hard to sort of argue against all of the tactics that, you know, could have prevented 9-11. But at the same time, you know, over the long run, that's not the right way to think about it because we're not creating a world that's better for ourselves and, and more worth defending if we sink completely to the to those levels. That's a great segue. I mean, what what do you say to the people who would argue that the realm of human rights should be kind of the realm of civil society and it's NGOs and religious organizations can advocate for that, but really the government to government diplomacy should be about cold, hard, calculated self-interest? Well, there are two responses. I mean, number one is if you if you parse the term self-interest. We can have self-interest in a country that is going to be more stable and a country that doesn't randomly lock away people and give their families grievances and, you know, sort of exacerbate its own internal tensions. That is a more stable ally. So that's usually the cold, hard counter argument. Uh, I think beyond that is, you know, a little bit more of the UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights and, and sort of what is this all for? As a country, the United States simply must stand for something a little bit more than expediency. Yeah, I think the the idea of standing for something is woven into, into the national creed a little bit, right? It's, it's, it's not just a 
race of people or a certain ethnicity, but a, a shared belief in something bigger than ourselves. So I appreciate that formulation. I wanted to move to another part of your career, which is you also served on the, on the National Security Council in the White House as a director for Central America Strategy Implementation. And I wanted to get your thoughts on the contrast. What's different working in the White House in, at this intersection of agencies versus being in the field? How does that, how's your life change? Mm-hmm. Well, you are, at that point, you're complaining about the embassies versus when you're at the embassy and you're complaining about the White House. Um, <laughs> we always have a, we have a tendency to accuse the other side of some version of blindness because you don't really think that they see things that you do. When you're in the field, you know, you see the quote unquote reality. It's what things really look like. But when you're in Washington, you might think people in the field are parochial. I had just come back from two years in Mexico, and I tried very hard to retain the field perspective as I went about the job. From the White House, though, you do have to try to rise above details and try not to micromanage. So the strategy was a great strategy. It had components in three areas of governance, development, and security. And each of those components had different lines of action. So that essentially my job, as I saw it, was to take these lines of action and find out who's, who was doing something on each of them and make sure that their work wasn't duplicative, that there weren't four people working on one thing and no people on another thing. So it was it was framed by the strategy itself, which for a while was not public. And then they allowed me to put it under my own name as a blog, which was funny. So I just I was I was given permission to basically say, look what we just passed, even though it was passed basically at the level of the cabinet. But anyway, that was the difference is that I was seeing the bigger picture and spending a lot of time on task assignment, whereas in the field, you really are breaking a task into component parts and really getting into the nitty the nitty gritty and the practical application. Yeah, so two really interesting things you brought up there. One, the importance of perspective taking and where you sit determining so much of what you think. And then the second being this coordination function of the National Security Council and making sure you understand who's doing what, where, and why. And it actually reminds me of something that tactically I think is a little bit interesting. When you look at a a government policy document or talking points, the last page has a list of names and either okay or contact for info or or info by request uh, next to it. Can you tell us a little bit about the concurrence process and what its role is in government? Wow. Well, I'll start with that. The the concurrence process or clearance process is two different things. Number one is getting the collective wisdom of a lot of smart people, each of whom has a slightly different area of expertise. So if I want to write my, you know, briefer for the Secretary of State meeting with the finance minister of a country that has a mineral sector, I don't have to suddenly go out and learn everything about the mineral sector. There's an office that does 
worldwide minerals and knows about this. So I go to those folks and say, what's our most important law or convention right now that the secretary should bring up? And they raise their head from the thing they've been working on 24-7, tell me the name and I've got it. So that's that's metaphorically the clearance process in terms of accumulating information that no single person has. But it also is a policymaking process where we figure out what we're trying to achieve and how we're going to get it. So if we know what we're trying to achieve, that's a good thing. So let's say that we want to I use my example, we want to get this country to sign on to this convention. If that actually is an accepted policy, you're almost all the way home. Your clearance process will not be terrible. Sometimes, though, we don't have a policy on something. So you're actually making the policy through this process. Maybe some people don't love the convention and others do. So you have to figure out what you want. And until you ask the question, you may not know that everyone is confused. So you nail that down and you figure out, okay, we do want this convention. So the final part of it is, okay, we know what we want. How do we get it? And then you get into the issue of language. And smart people can disagree. Is the right way to phrase it this or is it that? Are we threatening? Are we cajoling? Are we trading? At that point, somebody has to win. And the most senior person who will pick up a pen will win that one. And then it finally moves to the uh, policymaker. So if I were a glass half empty person, I might say this is a, wow, this sounds like a bureaucratic nightmare and just kind of slows the process down. Glass half full, meaning that this process actually has a pretty significant purpose, which is to A, to aggregate information that no single person could possibly possess, as you said, and then B, to make sure that we're getting kind of all sides of debate in a, in a policy discussion so that we put forth the best possible options. Yeah, I I mean, I I will just put it this way. I'm not sure why speed in a government is what you're looking for. Governments are not ideally built for speed. We're built for getting it right and consensus building and all those other things. If I were making widgets, I'm sure speed would be important. But inefficiency per se is in the eye of the beholder. And in this case, You could have a memo tomorrow, but it wouldn't contain all the information that you don't realize you don't know, and it might make a hideous mistake that's avoidable. So that's a a good nod to some of the external commentators and maybe to the private (laughs) sector a little bit. You talked about this idea of relative blindness, and if it happens in the government between the field and Washington, certainly happens between the government and the people being governed. What are some of the most difficult misconceptions or some of the things that frustrate you in terms of external commentary or external perceptions of federal employees? Well, I mean, we work hard and I don't know any other way to say it except that we work hard and people who think otherwise, I'm afraid, are not in full possession of the facts. But I know in the State Department that the days are very, very long and I mean, my last tour in Afghanistan, I went to bed at 11 and I woke up at six so that I would be well enough rested. I was on my Blackberry, going to have Blackberry, till 10.55 and I opened my eyes and I reached for it. 
And that was my day every day. So if people think they were not working hard, it's it's just not fair. But I think my frustration, though, is mainly with the policy side, the people who are commenting on policy. I had a professor at the National Defense University referred to the hand wave. The hand wave is you make a statement like, oh, well, first you should organize a peace conference. And then when the right people in the room, you can talk about X. Go back to that first part of that sentence. Do you have any idea what you're asking for in, hmm. in whatever that country is? Nobody would agree on who should be in the in the room. This has been tried several times, blah, blah, blah. But there is always the sense that there's some kind of easy first step that we seem to all be missing. Most good ideas have been tried, and they're all kind of hard. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, because it, it actually points to a lack of faith in our institutions and our public servants. Because if you believe that someone is capable and intelligent and knows what they're doing, you give them the benefit of the doubt. If you don't, you put forth what may seem like really obvious policy solutions and think that people just aren't doing them. Yeah. So that's a, I think it's a deeper problem with the way that, I mean, uh, with, with kind of the nature of interaction between a government. I will be utterly honest though. I'm sure that I do the same frustrating thing to people who work in fields that I don't understand, you know, like health. I, I probably have said, or thought things about, well, why don't they just do this? <laughs> it's kind of natural. I mean, I'm sure people feel that way about foreign policy. It really matters. It's scary. You know, wars are breaking out and they think, well, why don't you try X or Y? But in everybody's field, there's probably a lot of fallacies from the outside about things that seem easy, but really aren't. That's a great point. Is there anything we could be doing? Do you have any ideas on how you could get past that gut dynamic? For for foreign policy, I'm not sure because what I would want to do is to break down for people. And, you know, I had this problem sometimes with people in my own system. Well, you should do, you know, X, Y, and Z and tell them to hurry up their process of something. And I just, I, I sort of said, okay, time out. Let me tell you what it took to do something simple. I mean, I don't want to give you the boring details, but basically it was like they had to make a decision about whether or not to allow duplicates of the identity card to be used during the registration process. And, you know, in some societies that would be figured out in a half a second. And it, this issue stopped the whole process cold for a week. So the details are just man manifold. And I wouldn't want to bore everybody with them. But they have to, I guess, have, as you say, faith that sometimes things don't happen because they're very, very complicated. Yeah, no, it's a fair point. And I think it's, it's not helped by the fact that systems can be really opaque. So it's hard from the outside to understand what's going on and how things even work. For example, formerly you were a minister counselor. Mm -hmm. So that sounds so formal. Tell us what, what's the significance of that title? You know, it's, it's my own rank and I don't know enough about it. There are a few anachronistic 
and well-beloved features of diplomatic life that have persisted to this day. There are things that we as a service in the United States borrowed from the French, borrowed from the British. I don't even know, you know, who came up with these ranks. But one of the things that's kind of nice is that the ranks are relatively equivalent around the world. So I can meet a minister counselor ranked diplomat from another country. So while an American won't understand my rank, a foreigner will. And there's first, first secretaries and second secretaries, etc. It's just kind of universal the way that military ranks are. That makes a lot of sense. It's nice that we can coordinate things across the world. That's the rank that you've achieved over your career. And obviously there's so much in your biography that we could talk about. But I, I'm actually curious, what's not on your biography or on your resume that's really important to you or meaningful to you? Well, my son and husband, you know, my son is a junior in college and making me ridiculously proud. And I'm, I would say friendships that I have made across the world and friendships that I've been able to retain back here at home. I'm proud of basically being part of something much bigger than myself. You know, part of history, the South Africa experience, Afghanistan, all of these countries that were at turning points that were trying to recover from conflict. And I'm proud of having learned a huge amount along the way. I, I took some jobs just because they were intellectually interesting, managing security assistance to police and prisons and NGOs in Mexico, for example. You know, I'd never done anything really that had stretched me before before learning about the budgeting process. So that's sort of the nutshell is that I, I found myself engaged all along the way. I didn't really have a goal in mind for what I wanted to be at the very end. I wanted to just take jobs that were of interest to me. And the Foreign Service, of course, is fairly incredible. As, as I've had one employer for 30 years, but I've had about 14 different jobs. So mm -hmm. I could choose new things to do while still, you know, having the security of the same paycheck and the same it, <laughs> the same healthcare. <laughs> yeah, well, that's important. We're coming to the end of our time here. So one more question before I let you go. How would you talk to your son if he was considering a career in, in public service? And I don't know, maybe he is about the benefits and the, and the highs and also some of the downsides and some of the lows and, and how do you help him think through whether or not to serve and perhaps in what capacity? I think, as I've said, maybe not just to him, but to other people who've asked me, you really do have to accept the hierarchy, the structure before you go in. It's a, a negative experience when people come into the State Department and are upset by, you know, being junior and being told to do things that they'd rather not do, there's no real point to it. That's how it is. So if you don't like that, you shouldn't put yourself into that mix. I mean, and I don't mean like you're doing terrible things, but I do mean that you have to start at the bottom and you have to say yes 
when you're asked to do something that is lawful by your boss. So, you know, it's not a flat structure. It's a very hierarchical one. And, oh, by the way, being at the top of that structure is kind of great, uh, to be completely honest. But, you know, it is that way all the way through. So that's what I would say is, you know, it's the downside to some people. But it is the way that a big organization often works, and it is big. And you're big and unique. There's no other way to be a diplomat except to work for your country's government. So if you want to be a diplomat and what all that means to you and the history of it and the excitement of it, then this is the only place where you can do that. So, you know, that's the calculation you make. That's what I would tell him. That's fantastic. So, Annie, before I thank you and let you go here, any final thoughts that you'd like to leave our listeners with? I think that they can feel assured that in the State Department, the agency that I know best, people are earnest about their responsibility to the citizens of this country and and also that they're not narrow-minded about it. They want to define the common good of the United States in the broadest possible way so that it can include you know, ways that we can all feel better about the world that we live in. So we are advancing our country's interests, but we're trying to define those interests in the broadest possible sense. Annie Forsheimer, thank you so much for being with us today, and thank you for all that you've done on behalf of our country. It was my pleasure to be here, and it was certainly my pleasure to have my experiences. Thank you. For more episodes of the Inspired Service Podcast, please visit us at www.inspiredservice.org and subscribe on iTunes.